repeated. So this morning I want to preach to us on the subject of change. We've dealt with this some in Sunday school. And um, we've had great Sunday school classes with uh, the, what Jake uh, leading us in uh, confidence in our age. And uh, we've had these Ligonier um, videos and excellent instruction and then a great discussion following that in our Sunday school hour. And uh, this morning I want us to look at the 101st Psalm as we will uh, consider um, the psalmist who was in a, a time of change and how he prayed to the Lord and how uh, what lessons we can learn from that as well. So whether you're going through some particular trial now or whether you can be a counsel to others or whether that uh, is ahead of you in the future, that these, uh, this psalm is an excellent psalm to assist us. Then also, we think about the conditions that we have in our lives. We think about all the mess that we've gone through in the last two years with the COVID and all the various changes that have come upon us in our culture. We think of also the, uh, I mean, the war that was started up this week. Uh, we see uh, things happening all the time in uh, government and such. And so, and then our own personal lives, uh, things going on. So change is not anything that is foreign to us. Uh, but sometimes it affects us very directly. Uh, and uh, we want to address some of that this morning. The psalmist in the 102nd Psalm uh, knows that uh, God, that he belongs to God and that God is going to be with him in the changing seasons of his life, in this particular low point of his life. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we also know that uh, God is with us. And one of the things that we need to understand, and it's brought out in this uh, chapter, and that is that Jesus Christ rules over everything. So this morning, it's not Joe Biden or uh, Putin or uh, anybody else who is the ruler in this world are dominant. And it's not the devil either. The devil does control this sphere of what we label the world. But Christ is over all. And Satan is under him. He only has so much. He only has the, the ability to do what God gives him the freedom to do in this world. And that's brought out in Job. And it's always been that way. So Christ is on the throne. And he's not just on the throne of his church. He's on the throne of nations. And you might say, well, why are things going on the way they are? And I don't have time to get into that today, but i got answers for you. And the, 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 the deal is that it's been this way throughout history. God is working out his purposes. And if you and I had his mind, it would all make sense. But we don't. We are creatures. We're not the creator. But he is the sovereign and the ruler over all things. The scriptures teach us this, and we see this born in history. So we're going to read Ephesians, and in the last verse, 
It talks about Christ being over all things, and, it, and he does this on behalf of his church. And the last few verses declare this. So the most important thing going on today is what God's doing with his people, with his church, saving a people for himself. It doesn't mean other things aren't important. It's just this is the most important. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you in your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches and the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. I'll point out right now, this is a great way to, to know how to pray. You want to know what some of the things to pray about? We don't just pray for Aunt Sue's toe that's gotten infected. We pray about other things as well. Okay, and so here's all these great things that Paul said he was praying for these believers. We can pray this for one another. We can pray it for ourselves. Middle of verse 19. These are all in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Okay, this is about Christ. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me tell you, Jesus is not pacing heaven's floor this morning uh, wringing his hands, wondering what he can do about all the garbage that goes on in this world. He is governing all things. Let's go over now to Psalm 102. Now in this psalm, uh, the psalmist is going to talk about personal things and also things that relate to God's people. And we're going to read the whole psalm and then we're going to go through it again in the preaching of the word. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake and I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have caused my name, called, have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up and cast me away. See, he sees God dealing with this. It's not chance. It's not bad luck. But he, he sees God even behind the tragedy. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of his destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come. 
that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who are doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my years. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray now that you would bless us in the, in the hearing of your word and that you would uh, speak to each of our hearts and cause your word to bear fruit in our lives. We pray for comfort and encouragement. We pray for counsel to give others and ourselves uh, we pray for the storing up of knowledge for uh, that future time when we are going to be uh, broken and down and uh, experiencing what the, this uh, man did in his time of extremity. And that you, O oh Lord, would be a help to us and a comfort and encouragement. And help us, O oh Lord, to leave this place and to leave this passage praising you for your goodness and for your love and for your mercy and that we are your children who you tenderly love and care for. In Jesus' name, amen. During the Vietnam War, there was a song that uh, Bob Dylan sang, and it was, The Times They Are Changing. And you may uh, still hear that song, because that song is applied to a lot of different circumstances. And... Uh, I will spare you my impersonation of Bob Dylan, but I do, I could, could give that for you, but anyway. <laughs> um, I actually went back and um, listened to some of his songs thinking about this um, and had to correct some of my uh, lyrics that I sing when I sing them because I didn't have them down right. But um, he wrote that song uh, and a lot of people remember songs like that that had been written in wartime. And um, we, uh, they describe conditions, conditions of change, or they describe conditions that need changing. You may not agree with the song, but they do speak to that. And it's not really so unique, but throughout history people have had have used music like that to express those things. You and I are aware of change in our lives, and yet at the same time we know that the Bible teaches us that even though we go through change and change occurs, there are many times uh, things are just, they stay the same, don't they? We have the book of Ecclesiastes that talks about, and we have the book of Ecclesiastes that talks about how things uh, are, there's nothing new under the sun. 
But change comes to us in all kinds of different ways. Sickness, uh, job-related matters, uh, marriage. As I list this, people maybe that you know or situations in your own life, family problems, death, divorce, dreams that don't come true, plans that get postponed, financial plans, uh, relationship problems. We don't have to uh, look very far to see that change is a part of our lives, and many times it's unpleasant change. A lot of times when good change takes place, we can be thankful for it and we notice it, but we don't notice it like we do hard times. We don't notice it like it does when it's bad times that come. If you get a raise at work, you can think about how you're going to spend it and you are thankful for the change and you're happy and you think about how you're going to spend it. If they tell you everybody's going to die of COVID and you need to wear a mask the rest of your life, then that's the kind of change that you don't really get over too quick and you're not real happy with it. But anyway, we had change that none of us enjoy. By the way, do you remember two years ago when you did the grocery shopping and you brought things home and you watched videos of doctors showing you how to disinfect the pack of bacon that you just bought at the grocery store? This, uh, we've gone through two years of a lot of uh, change and a lot of stuff has happened. But we know right now uh, with the war going on in Ukraine and and because the media can make make everything that happens there or in some other place so real to us, we know how that uh, burdens our hearts and we see suffering and death. And we know that is true of our believers. We read letters from missionaries and, and others who are suffering, not only there, but in a lot of other places. We all... This uh, time of war and the believers in Ukraine should not be just a time to think about them, but it ought to be a time for us to uh, recognize that there are believers uh, everywhere who are under persecution for whom we need to be praying and then also asking uh, what are the means whereby we might be able to help. All right, so what we have here in this uh, prayer, in this uh, psalm, is we have, the to begin with, we have earnest prayer in unpleasant times. And that's what we're going to do, we're going to look at. We're going to look at this fellow's prayers. And maybe some of you, some of us can identify with his prayers. He gets very descriptive of how he felt. But earnest prayers, and the first thing he's going to deal with is individual concerns. The individual concerns that he had. And the earnestness of his prayer and his condition. We're going to look at his condition. And it's not a very pleasant situation, but it's uh, something that he really felt. You know, there's sometimes that you go through suffering. There's sometimes that you hurt. There's sometimes that you really hurt and your spouse doesn't understand, your kids don't understand, your mom and dad maybe don't understand, your friend doesn't understand, but you understand. And I think this guy here, he's going through real hurt. And 
as he goes through this hurt, he's also concerned about the church, but as he goes through this hurt, uh, he pours out his heart to God. And this is the thing that you and I can, can know, that God does understand when you and I a prayer and no one else understands our hurt, he does. And don't say to me, well, he hadn't gone through what I've gone through. Okay, you want to say it? Fine. Let me tell you this. He's gone through worse. Christ has endured worse. Christ has endured the wrath of God for the sins of his people. He's gone through things so many times infinitely worse than anything we go through. He understands, okay? He understands. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the time of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. Look at the words, the intensity. He knows God hears. He knows God's not deaf. He knows God doesn't sleep. But this is the earnestness of his prayer. You, know, you and I can pray this way. We know that God is not asleep. He's not deaf. But when he says, hear my prayer, let my cry of help come to you. Do not hide your face. Incline your ear. Answer me when I call. This is like you and me. When we talk to someone, we say, are you listening to me? Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you hearing me here? You see? And that's what he's doing. He's doing this with God. He's doing this respectfully. And you and I can pray the same way. We can pray with the we can all pray and we can pray sincerely. We can pray with the same intensity to be heard and pour out our hearts to God. You you can come to God in honesty and pour out your heart to him. When things are unfair, when things are broken, when things are messed up, do it respectfully. Do it with with love, but you can you do not have to hold back. You can cry out to him in unpleasant times. And that brings us to the second thing, the unpleasant times and his individual conditions. The psalmist prays out of terrible circumstances. Look at how he describes his situation. He says his bones feel like they've been burned in a fire in verse 3. And my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. His heart, he says, withers like grass. Look at that. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. He has lost his appetite. He doesn't eat. I forget to eat my bread. His trouble is so bad. He has lost weight. My bones cling to my flesh. He feels deserted. He describes these, uh, these birds, the pelican and the owl and the waste places. The idea is that they, he feels like he's away, from, uh, he's away from help. He's away from counsel. He's separated. There may be all kinds of people around him, but he feels like he is in a lonely place like a bird in the wilderness. And this is what he says. He says, I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. He has other people who speak ugly about him. In verse 8, My enemies have reproached me all day long. They deride me and have used my name as a curse. Verse 9, Ashes and weeping, the grieving that he is going through. I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. So this 
describes how he feels. Look over at verse 23. He says, He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. He's talking about God here. He's saying, God's brought all this mess on me. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. He said, Lord, don't let me die before my time. I feel like I'm going to die and you're shortening my life. You're the author of life. You're the author of this trial that I'm going through. You're the author of life. And he, he desires to go ahead and live and not die. Look at verse 10. He acknowledges that God is in, in all this because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. And verse 11, my days are like a lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. So what do we say about this fellow and about his situation? I think one of the things that one application we can say is that we should never consider our condition so bad that we cannot pray to God for help. We should never consider our situation so bad that we cannot pray to God for help. I know that sometimes in prayer I want to pray about something and I have an attitude that God's not going to do what I want. Okay, so you may have that as well. And uh, that's our problem, all right? Because we think we know what's best and we don't think he's going to bring it about like we express. But uh, so we, we just have to get over that. And we have to put ourselves in before him that he would bring about his will as he sees best. We can still make our requests known to him, but we, we submit ourselves to his will. But don't ever think that your condition is so bad. Don't ever think that things are so bad in family or work or finances or the world around you or with your relationships. Don't ever think that things are so bad that you cannot pour out your heart to the Lord or that he will not hear you. We come to him when we have sinned, even when we have sinned. We confess our sins to him and he still hears us and he still receives us. Even, even when you think that your condition is so bad because you have sinned, you come and you confess your sin and he receives you. He welcomes you. Just like the, we talked about this a few weeks ago, just like the story of the prodigal son, the father is smiling and his arms are open to receive. Now, what happens next is the psalmist switches gears and he switches gears to start talking about the church's condition, the church's concern and condition. And psalmist mentions in verse 13, Zion, you will arise and have compassion on Zion. So what is Zion? Zion represents God's people. God, Zion is Jerusalem. So where is Zion today? Zion today is wherever the church is. Jesus said to the woman at the well that the Father desires those to worship Him who worship Him in spirit and truth. So wherever God's people are gathered to worship Him in spirit and truth, no matter where it is in the world, that is where Jerusalem is. That is where Zion is. That is where the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says that believers are children of Abraham. Abraham is our father by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham is our father. And so here what the psalmist is doing, he is praying here for God's people. 
because not only is he in unpleasant times, but he sees the church in unpleasant times as well. Some people think this may have been written at the time that Israel had been carried off into captivity. And there are different ideas about when it was written. We don't know. But we do know that there have been enough sad times in the life of the church that it could have been written at different times. But anyway, this is what the psalmist does here. He's describing the churches in need, and uh, he, he, he switches gears, and he prays for God's people. Verse 13, You will arise and have compassion on Zion for it is time to be gracious to her for the appointed time has come. Maybe he knows of some promise from God or some prophetic fulfillment or maybe he uh, he just says that on his own. He just says, okay God I'm ready. It's time for you to do something. But he sees but he he, he, he sees that the city Apparently, it's talking about Jerusalem, the physical city, is in ruins. Verse 14, Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the idea of the place of God's presence is the place that has uh, come under attack. And verse 15, he talks about other nations. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. So he sees that this is not going on now, all right? So if, you're, if, you're, if the, your capital city is broken down, then, then that showed to people, well, your God maybe isn't a great God if your capital is broken down. So if Jerusalem is in ruins, then that meant other nations that knew about Jerusalem being in ruins, that they would be making fun of, of the, the people who had the true God as their God. And so that's why... He says in verse 15, he wants nations to fear the name of God again. He wants kings of the earth to recognize his glory. And so he wants all of these things to take place. What application do we draw from this? If we belong to Christ, we must see that we, those who self-consciously love Christ, are his church. Those who belong to Christ are his church and those who love his church. Look at verse 14. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. You and I, if we are Christians, we are to love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to love her people. You say, well, I don't like certain people in the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, you got to love them anyway. And I'll tell you why. Because God tells us to love our enemies. Okay? So if somebody is an enemy to you in the church, we have to love them anyway. All right? So there's no escaping this. We are to love the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his church. We are to love God's people. And and we are to uh, love her ways. And I'll tell you, when the church comes under, when, when, you, when you go through situations where uh, God's people who profess to be his people don't follow his word, don't follow his truth, it can leave a real bad taste in our mouth for the church. We can become angry. We can be upset. But what we have to do is we have to, we have to straighten ourselves out and we have to say, wait, 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 wait. This doesn't mean that the church is bad. What this means is that there are these people who are troubling the church 
And so I, I certainly I should not be agreeable to how they are troubling the church. What I need to do is I need to love the church as God has constituted the church and as it is. And the second application we should have is we should look beyond personal concerns to the concerns of Christ's church. We should look beyond personal concerns to the concerns of Christ's church. And that's what the psalmist does here. He cries out to the Lord for himself, but what else does he do? He prays for the church. He prays for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for God's people. This goes against a misguided notion in our day of people in the church. There are a lot of people in the church who think, okay, the main thing I need to be concerned about is me and mine, and then after that, my family. Oh, and the church is this thing over here. And I can just deal with it as I want or when I want or how I want. But that's not, that's not the case. We as Christians are those who should love her stones. We are those who should love the body of Christ and the, the church that Christ has established. And that's what the scriptures teach. In fact, scriptures teach in Peter that we are living stones that make up the church. Christ came and he established his church. We are to love God and our neighbor first. Not me and mine, but Christ and his are the most important to us. This does not mean that we ignore family responsibility. It simply means that Christ's church is the chief way through which God makes his presence known and therefore we ought to always be concerned for the welfare of Christ's church. Here's a quote from Calvin. We ought particularly to attend to the circumstances already averted to, that we are thus stirred up by the Holy Spirit to the duty of prayer in behalf of the common welfare of the church. Whilst each man takes sufficient care of his own individual interests, there is scarcely one in a hundred affected as he ought to be with the calamities of the church. All right, our second point is the assurance of blessing because God is unchangeable. All right? So we have the... We have him praying about the church, and now we have assurance of blessing because God is unchangeable. God will hear, and he will bless his people. In verses 15 through 17, the psalmist presumes that God will hear and answer his prayer and the prayer of others. He says the nations will fear. Kings will uh, see his glory. For the Lord has built up Zion and appeared in his glory. And he has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their power. So either their prayer. So either he saw this happening or he anticipated it was going to happen because of who God is. Look at verses 18. Uh, verse 18 through 22, he sees future generations praising the Lord. This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. And so he anticipates that God's going to bless. And God has done this. God has done this. We have now, we have nations upon nations, all different tribes and nations over the earth who worship the Lord God. 
and who bow the knee to Jesus Christ. All these prophecies that were given to Abraham and even this psalm here, we can see elements of that fulfillment. But the deal is that the psalmist sees that God is going to answer prayer. He's going to bless his church. Now you and I cannot predict when he's going to do it or how he's going to do it, but we know he will do it in his own time and in his own ways because that's his character, because he doesn't change. Look at verse 28. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. There's the promise. The promise of the church and of the blessing that will come to the church that God will give. And this is the confidence they have because he is unchangeable. God is unchangeable. The second point under this, this is our confidence and joy. This is our confidence and joy. In verse 11 and 12, the the psalmist sees this for, um, for himself. He says in verse, uh, he talks about how God is unchangeable and he is not. In verse 11, he says, My days are like a lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. Our lives are very temporary. Okay? And, but you, O God, abide forever. See the comparison. And your name to all generations. So he likens this also in verse 24, where he talks about his death, and then he talks about God being eternal, verse 25. Of old you founded the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. All right, so he says that God is unchangeable. God is unchangeable. So you say, or we might say, well, how in the world does God being unchangeable give me peace and hope and encouragement? All you're telling me is that I'm temporary, and what's the big deal if God's unchangeable? Why does he make this point here? He makes this point because everything that is good and true of God is always going to be true and good of God. Look over at Psalm 103. Look over at Psalm 103 and go down to verses 8 and 9. Here is the character of God mentioned. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His This is who he is. Somebody sometimes will say, you can't obligate God to do anything. Well, God is obligated to do things. God has obligated himself to love his people. God has obligated himself to forgive us of our sins. God has obligated himself. He has committed himself to us. And he doesn't change. And you have his character there mentioned. Or look at verses 15, look at verse 15 in that same Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it's no more, and his place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children, children, to those who keep his covenant, covenant and remember his precepts to do them. All of his promises are true. He's going to bless his people. You may feel like you're going through hell on earth and other people may feel like hell is breaking loose all around them. But God holds his people in his hands and in his heart and he will bless them and he will take them 
home to be with Him. And He loves them. God is unchangeable. He is unchangeable. And He takes care of His own. Perone, I'll give you a quote from uh, Perone uh, on this psalm. And he references Calvin in the text. But listen to what he says about God being unchangeable. And yet this might seem, as Calvin remarks, a far-fetched consolation. What is it to us that God changes not, that he setteth as king forever? If meanwhile our own condition is frail and feeble, that we cannot continue for a moment in one stay. His unchangeable peace and blessedness do but make our life seem more complete mockery. But, the psalmist recalls, God's promises to His church, especially that great covenant promise, I will be in your, the midst of you. Resting on this, he feels sure that God's children, however miserable their state, shall have their share in that heavenly glory wherein God dwelleth, because God changes not. His promise and covenant change not, and therefore we may ever lift our eyes to His throne in heaven, from which He will surely stretch forth His hand to us so he may relieve us of our suffering here or he may just take us on home to glory himself the final point is Jesus Christ is the eternal God and exalted head of his church these verses in Psalm 102, I'll show you something. In Psalm 102, at verse 25 through 27, these are verses that are quoted about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. And they're quoted about Jesus because why? Because Jesus is God. And so we think of this, you know, being spoken of but these, this is quoted in Hebrews 1, talking about Christ appointing the earth and, and uh, how, his, how He is eternal, how He is unchangeable. The very things which we might presume are about God the Father are spoken of God the Son by God the Father. It's like Isaiah 9, 6. You know, we always think of these, Isaiah 9, 6 at Christmas time. But listen to these names that are given to Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. There again, that's like what we start out, right? Ephesians 1, Christ running everything, right? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. What? We think about the Holy Spirit being the counselor, right? Mighty God, Eternal Father. We think of the Father as the Father, Prince of Peace. All these names are applied to to Christ. To Christ we come and we pour out our hearts and we expose our hurts and our pains and our concerns and we profess our love to Him and to His own people and for His church and we pour out our prayers and we are heard. And Christ Jesus who is the King and Head of His church and Christ Jesus who is the governor of all things that go on in the world today. Christ Jesus hears us and he loves us. He loves us corporately as a body, but he also loves us 
in our living rooms and in our cars when we pray to Him and when we talk to Him and when we have fellowship with Him and when we are with Him in those times as well. He is our Savior. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's the great one of the great messages of the Scriptures. So He is with His church and He is with us individually as well. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the love wherewith you have loved us. We ask you to forgive us for times when we have bad attitudes about your being late and slow to act or not hearing prayers or when we have a bad attitude about you not understanding how we know everything that ought to be done and yet we don't have your mind. Forgive us, Lord, when we have a bad attitude. And help us, Lord, to always be fervent in our prayer about our situations, but also for your church. And help us, Lord, to be filled with love for one another and a concern for your glory and for your honor in the world. We thank you, Jesus, that in you there is forgiveness of sins and there is righteousness for us who are sinners whereby we can be accepted. O Lord, help us all to love and to follow and to look to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.